thankful to be here this morning. Um, I want to discuss this morning with you the mystery of the faith once delivered to the saints. You know, we believe as disciples, as Christians, a lot of things that we can't fully understand, we can't fully explain. And that's something we need to grapple with. We need to deal with and understand at the outset. When we profess faith in Jesus Christ, we are professing to believe something that we can't fully understand nor fully and completely defend. We need to understand that because the enemy wars against our souls and against our confession and against the church of Jesus Christ by presenting arguments that are designed to undermine our faith and our trust in the truth that we have received. So that's, at the outset, the idea that I want to address for us this morning is we've received mysteries in the Word of God, things that we're not asked to fully understand, but simply to believe and to trust. So... Our faith in the Word of God, our faith in Jesus Christ is just that. It's faith. It's trusting that we do not fully understand. But it's also, thanks be to God, an assurance and a knowledge that someday we will understand. We'll understand it better by and by, as it's said. The Word of God tells us that when we see Him face to face, when we experience the glorification of this body when we experience the blessing of the resurrection then we'll know even as we are known and there's a promise of greater understanding as paul writes to timothy who was standing for the faith in the midst of a great deal of persecution a great deal of satan's efforts to undermine the faith and there was a growing effort we'll talk about a little bit more even within the churches of god paul writes in first timothy chapter 3 And says to Timothy, if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And he defines this mystery this way. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. If you want to codify the Christian faith in a very simple and and compact form, it's right here. What do we believe? God was manifest in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels. The gospel was preached unto the Gentiles. It was believed on in the world, and Jesus Christ was received up into glory. Each of those statements is mysterious in its own right. Each of those statements is impossible for us to fully comprehend or understand. How can we understand God being manifest in the flesh? With all that we understand about who God is, about what it means to be a God, or more specifically, the God, how can we say that he was manifest in the flesh? You say, oh, well, that's easy. That's what I believe about Jesus. Really? Is it that easy? Start thinking about what that means. 
God manifest in the flesh. The Philippian letter tells us he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. How can God die? You can't explain that. God is by nature everlasting. He was before all things. By him all things consist. He'll be after all things. But God died. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ suffered. He suffered need. How is that possible for God? There's a lot that's hard to understand. He was all man. He was human. How can God become a part of his creation? How can be he be human? Paul says it's a great mystery. We need to understand that going in. Don't try to defend the humanity of Jesus Christ on men's terms. Why? Because when we try to explain the humanity of Christ in a relatable and understandable way, we cannot but take away from the deity of Christ. He was all God. He was all man. He is all God and he is all man. The perfect man, the man Christ Jesus. We believe it. We can't fully explain it. What about the second statement? Justified in the spirit. How can God be justified? Our whole concept of the word justified is declaring one to be righteous. And it always connotes in our mind that there's some question about their righteousness. It's a declaration made to say this person is declared to be righteous or holy because there was some doubt about it. How can God be justified? And furthermore, justified in the spirit. What is the spirit? Well, the spirit is God. God has justified himself. Well, we have some clues about this. The same author, the Apostle Paul, writes in the Roman letter in Romans chapter 3, and he says God was justified when Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Well, how's that possible? Because God's faith, his trust, was in himself, in his son, to do the work he had promised to do. And by that faith, God acted favorably toward the saints throughout all of history leading up to that date. And his faith was justified. Why? Because Jesus did what he covenanted to do. But Paul here says justified in the spirit. Scene of angels. Are angels real? Do they exist? Have you seen one? Can you prove it? Scene of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. What a mystery. Why is that a mystery? Because God, from the beginning of time, made covenant. And he made covenant with specific individuals out of all people. He made covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Abraham's sons. Covenant with the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And he said, I've called you out, I've chosen you of all the nations of the earth, and you are my people. And I've made a covenant with you forever. And now he's preached unto the Gentiles. The Jews couldn't understand it. Jesus in John chapter 10 said, Other sheep have I that are not of this fold. Them also must I bring. The Jews said, What do you mean? You can't bring them. We are your people. You made covenant with us. Preached unto the Gentiles. How can God be faithful to his covenant with Israel and let, and yet set them aside and deliver the gospel to the Gentiles? There are things hard to be understood. Believed on in the world. How can anyone believe on this God? You say, well, it's easy. Really? Why did so many people reject 
God manifest in the flesh. When Jesus came preaching his own gospel and he was rejected by the masses, how can anyone believe? Jesus says, no man can come unto me except my father which has sent me draw him and I'll raise him up at the last day. Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my father which is in heaven. So there are great mysteries and finally received up into glory. How can you believe that? This God who was manifest in the flesh died, rose again, and then ascended into glory. Explain to me how a fleshly human body sits right now at the right hand of the throne of God on high. That Jesus Christ ascended in physical form to be with God in heaven. Can you fully explain that? Can you understand that? Do you believe it? I trust the answer is yes. So God was manifest in the flesh. Paul says this is a great mystery, and it is. But it's a necessary mystery to understand and to believe. In fact, it's the very heart of the gospel. There is no gospel if we don't understand who Jesus Christ is and what that means. And the word of God is clear. So there's a lot of debate among theological circles over some of the content of the scripture. A lot of scriptural criticism that's done. There's a great verse found in the last chapter of John's first epistle that says there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are a lot of people who say that doesn't even belong in the scripture. That was a product that someone added to the scripture centuries after John wrote that letter. And there are arguments to be made on both sides of that. I'll tell you, I believe that it was written by the Apostle John. I believe that was written in the scripture when the scripture was penned by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that message aside, the scripture is full of evidence, full of proof of this concept of the Trinity of the Godhead. This idea that says Jesus Christ is God, fully God and yet fully man. And that's something we have to grapple with, but we have to believe it. Because if we doubt that, if we question the deity of Christ, we're questioning everything the word of God says. Because without being God, Jesus could not have been who he was. Without him being God, there is no salvation. Without him being God manifest in the flesh, there is no hope. So we have to understand this truth. The doctrine of the Trinity developed among theologians took some time to explain it in the form we understand it. And there are some who say, well, there was no idea of the Trinity until, you know, at the very earliest, the Apostles' Creed in the 3rd century A.D. Others say, well, the Athanasian Creed in the 6th century, that's what codified our understanding of Trinity. And those are documents that are helpful because they were the result of wars and battles over trying to understand who this God is that we worship. And to fully understand it, we have to realize the time in which Christ came. He came in a time where there was a confusion between the pluralistic uh, system of worship of the Romans where nearly everything could be a god and there were levels and degrees of gods and men could be worshipped as gods. In fact, they were. The Roman emperor was worshipped as a god. 
In fact, early Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they would not worship the Roman deities. They wouldn't worship the gods that the world worshipped in their time. They said there's only one God. The Jews were okay with that. They were accepted. They said there's only one God. His name is Yahweh, Jehovah. He is the God. But the Jews didn't like the Christians either. Why? Because the Christians said God, he came down. God became man. Jesus Christ is God. And the way it was addressed is the way it's addressed in Scripture. God is God and Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And I will grant that in the first century there's no evidence the church defined the Trinity as we do today. This great protracted explanation that explains that Jesus is fully God, but he's not to be confused with God the Father, and yet they are one. But Paul addressed it here when he said, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. There are things that we can't fully explain. And the reality is, if we can fully understand God, then we are gods. And that is the weapon that Satan uses against believers, is to say... You can be like God. If you just study hard enough, if you just work hard enough, if you just do the right things, then you can equate to God. You can relate to God on an equal level. And that is blasphemy. It's heresy. It denies the essential glory of God, which brings us to a place of worship. So Jesus Christ is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Father is God. The Hebrew letter begins, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being so, made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The author of the Hebrew letter here is expressing this mystery of godliness. And here he gives us a great framework to understand God communicating himself to man. First, God in at sundry times and in divers' manners. That is, at different times throughout history and in various ways or manners, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. The Old Testament scripture is God speaking to man. If we want to understand and defend the inspiration of Scripture and argue against those who say these Old Testament books are just collections of men's writings that have no special authority or they're just stories or fairy tales or myths and want to put them on the level of Herodotus or some Greek mythologies, this Scripture says, no, God spake. God spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He did it in different ways and different times. And that's so true. We look at the Old Testament. We have the oldest book of the Old Testament, the book of Job. 
written a long time ago and written in a kind of strange way. And there's hard things to understand there. How do we define or understand how it is that Satan, the enemy, the devil, came and stood before God when God had gathered essentially his angels together to address them? Where's the sense in that? How does Satan get an audience with God and how does God not destroy him on sight? In various times, in sundry times, in divers' manners, he spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets. We understand this covenantal framework of God's revelation. God spoke to Adam in the garden. First, he spoke to him and said, I've made you and I've given you this garden and you can eat of any fruit that you find in the garden except one tree and that I've commanded you don't eat of. The day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. He spoke to Adam again a while later after Adam had partaken willfully of that fruit and disobeyed God with full knowledge of what he was doing. And God walked in the garden in the cool of the day and he said to Adam and Eve, where are you, Adam? And they had hid themselves. And Adam says, well, we hid ourselves because we were naked. God said, who told you that? Well, we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent that you created, he beguiled us. He confused us. He convinced us. And how did he do that? By, by causing them to question God's word and God's law. Is God really right? Did God really say that? Yea, hath God said that you should not eat of every tree of the garden? God revealed himself to Noah when the earth had grown so wicked, so evil. It had been populated according to God's command, but men had turned away from God had begun to make strange gods to themselves, had begun to pursue wealth and privilege and power. And God looked down and saw the world was full of evil. And he came to Noah. He said, Noah, build a ship. Build an ark. And I'm going to flood the water. I'm going to destroy all men off the earth. He revealed himself to Noah. He revealed himself to Noah in the sign of the rainbow, the pledge that he would never again destroy the world in that way. He revealed himself in Abraham a few generations later, calling Abraham from a wicked and pagan land, Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Babylon. He called Abraham and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with your descendants forever, and you'll be my people and God revealed himself in remarkable ways to Abraham. Talk about sundry times and divers' manners. When God made covenant with Abraham, he appeared as a smoking lamp and a fire and, and visibly displayed himself. And then when it was time for him to come and destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain, God came in a human form and communed with Abraham and his wife Sarah. And prophesied to them of the coming of their son, Isaac. Sarah laughed and he said, why are you laughing? She said, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. God revealed himself to Abraham in the form of a ram stuck in a bush as Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son in obedience to God, depicting the coming of Christ. He appeared to Jacob as an angel wrestling with Jacob. 
he appeared again and again, and then he revealed himself most clearly as he communed with Moses and gave Moses the law of God. All of these things occurred, and this was God in sundry times in divers' manners speaking in times past. And then he spoke by the actual prophets, giving men words to speak, declaring things that had not yet been. And there's some remarkable mysteries there. How is it that Isaiah, more than a hundred years before the birth of Cyrus, king of Persia, could give Cyrus's name and declare the works that he would do? That was astounding even in that day when Cyrus was acquainted with that scripture. After he had come to the throne of Persia, it changed his heart and mind toward the Jews and emboldened him to fulfill the word of God by allowing them to return and rebuild their city and rebuild the temple. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets and worked wonders in them. But in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. The world's okay with that, right? God can have a son. Why not? We are all the sons of God, are we not, in some sense? But no, this son of God is equal with God. He is God. What does it say here? Being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. This son of God is verily God. The one by whom he made the worlds. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. The definition, the description here is of God himself. But this son of God did something else remarkable. When he had by himself purged our sins. What a mystery. What an impossible mystery. He by himself purged our sins. And that deserves some unpacking too as we think about it in terms of the doctrines of grace and those competing systems that are introduced in the world. This says by himself he purged our sins. And what is there against us other than our sins? There's a lot of talk about what you need to do to find favor with God or to earn your way or get your way or find your way to heaven. What is there that brings the wrath of God upon you and upon your soul? It's your sin, right? If he by himself purged your sins, if in the eyes of God you are without sin, that means you are justified in Jesus Christ. He by himself purged your sins. What is it that's going to be brought against you? Same author Paul in the Roman letter, Romans chapter 8, brings that very point to bear. What does he say? If he spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. Why? By himself he purged your sins. If your sins are purged, there is nothing that can be brought against you. If your sins are purged, then your salvation is is secure. It's important that we understand the gospel is a mystery. Paul makes no bones about it. It's not something we're going to fully understand. So our defense of the truth is not simply an exercise in apologetics or polemics. 
It's not about building a logical framework and explaining it in a way that all will have to consent. No, the gospel is a matter of faith, of trust, that God became man. That Jesus Christ purged our sins by himself. That he did ascend and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God on high. And he rules today. He is Lord to the glory of God. And that mystery also involves understanding that none of this is about you and me. The God of glory doesn't need me. But by his grace, he's shown me and you our need of him. And he's condescended to receive glory, to receive praise, to receive worship from sinners saved by his grace. Thank you for your time this morning. And uh, I'm going to continue some of these thoughts here in just a moment.